cool. Uh, we're not going to have our Bible reading, so please turn uh, open your page uh, and I'll wait for the Bible reading to fall over. Uh, we're going to read from Acts chapter 6.
Netflix and Google and Amazon is they're disruptive innovators. Disruptive innovators. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, not disrupting rainforests, uh, but disrupting the marketplace. Uh, something that Uber doesn't do, actually. That is, they're working in traditional products, but they're bringing them in new ways. Uh, in new ways. So, uh, Netflix delivers movies online. You don't have to go anywhere to get it. Amazon delivers books via drones, hopefully one day. They are hoping <laughs> to do. To deliver anything via, look, it's too big, via uh, drone. A Google in the marketplace of information will not just tell you where to go, but they have self-drive cars that will be able to do all sorts of things. They're, they're disruptive technology. That is ordinary everyday products, but done in a new and different way. In this passage that we're looking at, and also in Acts chapter 7, you see disruption. Disruption to the norm. In fact, if you've been with us looking at the book of Acts, you might notice there's actually a lot of disruption running through the whole beginning of the book of Acts. And it comes to a climax, a crescendo, in this chapter, the one that was read, and the next one, chapter 7. Where's the disruption? Well, I'm going to bless in prayer as we do look at this part of God's word. Lord, thanks for your word to us. <coughs> I pray that you might help me to be able to speak it well and clearly and faithfully. Help us to be able to hear your word and to be able to respond in obedience. Amen. If you have been with us uh, looking at the book of Acts, you'll know that this is the time of the early church. Jesus has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven, and now the church is based in Jerusalem, the city of Jerusalem where Jesus uh, taught in the last weeks of his life. And that is the basis of, the home base of Christianity. It's a wonderful community. The people who've become believers, if you've been with us, you'll have heard about them doing dinners for eight in their homes, not just one day in a year, but every day, and sharing with one another such that nobody had need. Uh, everybody, if you couldn't cook, that was okay, you were looked after. Uh, the church was a wonderful place, but it was the Commonwealth where people shared their possessions with each other. And they met at the temple daily and they rejoiced and they ate in each other's homes. It was a beautiful thing. And it was a terrific, terrific time. Just like residential college. <laughs> like heaven on earth. <laughs> Except that it wasn't residential college. The church was made up of people who were sinners. The church were not the morally perfect. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira, that married couple? lied to Peter the Apostle, God's representative, lied to the Holy Spirit, he says, and showed great hypocrisy and deceit that had no place in God's church. The church, despite the joy and generosity, was still a place made up of sinners. Remember that Jesus welcomed the tax collectors and sinners, the outcasts, into his church. Jesus' church was the church of the morally the moral failures of society. The bad people, the, the people you don't look up to. The people that you look up to in society didn't want to be in Jesus' church. 
we have the flip situation where people expect our churches to be full of the morally upright people, the perfect. And when we're not, everyone points that out very clearly. But Jesus' church is the church for the moral failures. Not that they stay as failures, but that they repent, that they are being changed, that they are becoming people of generosity and faithfulness to their words, faithfulness to each other. And this is the church that we see. Here in Acts 6, we see there is injustice in the church. It's raised by this complaint, probably including racial issues. The Hellenists, that is the Greek-speaking Jews, were complaining against the Hebrews because the Greek-speaking Jews were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Uh, it's right that the widows, amongst the most vulnerable in any society, were provided for, and that is why people brought money and possessions and laid it at the apostles' feet so that the apostles could distribute to anyone who had need, including the widows, especially the widows in this particular case. But what was happening was that the Hellenistic widows, the Greek-speaking ones, who've come and they've made their home back in Jerusalem, which is natively Hebrew-speaking, out of place, they're being overlooked and neglected. And it's right that there was a complaint made that they were missing out and they were being neglected. And it's right to do that when there is injustice to make a complaint, even within the church. Uh, we do so with generous hearts, not as grumblers and complainers, but we do it to see things made right. And, this is not in the passage, but you're at work to leaders, especially young leaders, if people make a complaint to you about something, don't be defensive, don't seek to dismiss as though it's irrelevant. But as our leaders do here, take it seriously. If you have a complaint, make sure you do it with an attitude of generosity and seeking to put things right. The issue is serious. So serious that the whole of the disciples are called together, we're told. They call the full number of disciples together and, it, and they say it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Down to priorities, number point one. They realise that this issue is beyond their control as the 12 apostles within this burgeoning community of thousands. They can't do it. It's beyond them. And they take it to everybody. They put forward this idea. Let's appoint seven men of good repute. Seven men of good repute. Full of the Spirit. And we'll get them to look after the distribution of food uh, for those who are in need each day. And we will continue to give ourselves to the Word of God and prayer. That is the priority that we have. That's the priority we've been given by the Lord Jesus to make His Word known. And it's right that they do that. And it's right that we all make priorities. Saying yes to something means saying no to something else. And if you say yes to something, you're actually saying no to something else. By saying no to the daily distribution of food, they're able to fulfil their mission, which is the Word of God and prayer. And so it is with the Uni Bible Group. Uh, we have a priority. It is to, I'll give it for you, Proclaim Christ at university to present everyone mature in Him. That is our priority. It doesn't mean that other things don't matter. Social justice issues are important. Uh, looking after the needs uh, of 
those without in our community is very important. Being aware of justice issues around the world is very important. It's just that as a group here, we've decided that our priority is that of proclaiming Christ. That's what we do as a group. We're not trying to do everything in the world. We're trying to do this one thing. And it's a good thing. It's a thing that Jesus seeks to do. In fact, as that work happens in people's hearts, it changes people's hearts and actually leads to fixing up of social issues that we otherwise wouldn't have fixed. But that's another story. The, the apostles had this priority. And they hang on to it. It's a good priority. It's a priority that's reinforced by God down in verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in, uh, in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. God backs up the mission by seeing the word of God grow. And the way that it comes about is a bit unusual. It's with this guy called Stephen. What do we focus in on Stephen? Uh, we're talking about his character, not his efforts at administering food. That's what he's been appointed to do, to administer food distribution. Rather, it's his character that we're drawn to in verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the, among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and of, and of the Alexandrians and those of Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Stephen presumably was good at distributing food, but he's actually a much better debater, or at least he's a good debater, and he is able to defeat these guys who have come to question him and oppose him, and so much so that he continues to speak. And finally, he is brought before the council of in Jerusalem to, to give evidence and to face charges. Uh, we're told that they couldn't match him in debate, so they instigated some men against him who said, we have heard him speaking blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before that council and then set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law, speaking against Moses and the temple. Never ceases to speak against it. He does do lots of speaking, apparently. Then they bring Jesus into it. For we, have, verse 14, for we heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. It's a very interesting charge brought against Stephen here. That Jesus, he's been saying that Jesus will come and will destroy this place. But is there in that a tacit acknowledgement that Jesus is not dead as they had claimed? But why are they so worried about a dead man coming to destroy the temple such that they will bring a charge against Stephen? <laughs> These guys are worried about what is happening. And so he's brought, he brought in before the council and at the beginning of chapter 7 uh, the word comes, you won't be able to read that by the way, that's okay, don't worry. The high priest said, are these things so? 
to Stephen. Are these charges true? Well, it's the thing that Jesus was, had warned his apostles about back in Luke 12. This very, very occasion, this very thing. Luke chapter 12, verse 11. Jesus said, And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour. <coughs> There's Jesus' warning and promise. When you're up in front of the synagogue, rulers and you're called to account, don't be anxious. Words will be given to you. And... It's a great comfort to have Jesus warning that there would actually be opposition and that he knew about it. He prepared for it and he will prepare you for it, Jesus says to his disciples. Person-to-person opposition is one thing. What we see throughout Acts, and indeed what we see throughout the history of the church, is organisations, governments, councils, moving against God's people. It's always been the case, and it always will be the case. Uh, it'll be the case in your lifetime, growing so, uh, even more so than what it has been. Uh, governments have a, a great way of, sort of keeping the peace by just shifting Christians, uh, shifting dissenters off to the side. They don't, on some occasions they will bring action against them in a violent way but most of the time our governments just push you off to the side and squeeze you out you see that sort of thing happening with schools, scripture in schools uh, where you just can't do that, you can't teach that particular thing, I'm not stopping talking about Jesus, you just can't talk about that particular thing in that particular way and you just slowly squash it off to the side and it looks a bit nice and palatable but it's still action against the preaching of Christ and the Word of God. And that will happen more and more. And I think we'll see it in schools. Even in some of our beloved Christian schools, independent schools, where there is freedom at the moment to teach and preach about Christ, I think that will change over time. I think that will become difficult to do. Um, That's one place where government can get hold of uh, things and restrict uh, funds and finances based on programs that you do or don't teach in schools. Uh, just a word, this is not from the past, mind you. Uh, if you are thinking about a change of career in life, uh, where should you go? Uh, take up the great opportunity that there is actually in schools at the moment to become a teacher while we can preach Jesus openly in independent church schools. While we and we're actually it's part of the program, make the most of it. Mm. Uh, get in it and, and do it and teach and make the most of that. If you're thinking about changing your career or not sure what to do, uh, you can talk to me about that type of thing. Back to the passage. <laughs> Stephen then begins this to answer this charge, his defence and counter charge. It's the longest or one of the longest speeches. I haven't calculated. It's 53 verses. Uh, Stephen begins way back with Abraham. Uh, perhaps it's a debating tactic. Let me start way back here. Uh, give me time to think about what's going to happen when I get up there. Uh, what will I sing? What will I say? Well, 
Before we dive into what Peter's case is, it's worth asking what's happening here. Stephen was set aside to wait on tables, to serve food, so that the apostles could get on with the word of God and prayer. Here we see Stephen with, with the ministry of the word, and not seemingly to be looking after widows. He's preoccupied with other things now. There's no mention of the apostles here. They're not involved, it would seem. In fact, Stephen is described in very apostle-like terms. Signs and wonders, full of the Holy Spirit. Everybody, in verse 15, acknowledges that Stephen has the face of an angel. He's got these almost apostle-like qualities, like the twelve, but and he's doing their job. Back to Stephen's car. What are we supposed to make of that, by the way? Question. Back to Stephen's long defence and counter charge. He traces some of the history of the nation of Israel beginning from the time of Abraham, and we don't have time to read it all. But please do read it. I'm going to highlight a couple of things that I think are important along the way. You'll need to go back over and see this, if what I say actually is faithful to the passage. But first of all, we see that, yep, there it is. Stephen goes to Abraham. Uh, so, verse 2 of chapter 7. Stephen said, Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And then talked about Abraham and then jumps down to our good friend Joseph, verse 9. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, said, I sold him into Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions. The patriarchs, or the, or the twelve sons of Jacob, formed the nation of Israel. One of them, Joseph, God's chosen instrument, is almost killed by his brothers and sold into, Egypt, into slavery in Egypt. But God uses Joseph to save his brothers and grow the nation while they're in Egypt under slavery. Next one. Moses, verse 27. Hundreds of years later in Egypt, um, Moses is... Uh, born and raised up amongst the Israelites in Egypt, but the man who was uh, wronging his neighbour thrust Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Yesterday it's happened in, the, in Moses' life in Egypt, as he's appointed by God to lead the people. Instead, he's rejected by the people mm. at the very first instance. Also, Stephen points to our future. Uh, sorry, this uh, no. This points to Moses when God meets him. Then the Lord said to Moses, "Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground." This is after Moses has fled out of Egypt because he thinks that he's going to be caught out for killing the Egyptian. And God meets him on Mount Sinai, and God says, "Take off your sandals." Remember the burning bush that isn't really burning? That's that account. The place where you're standing is holy ground. Also, uh, we're told by Stephen that there's a future prophet who's promised. This Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. It's all part of his defence. But instead, what they did our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. And in 
Stephen brings his defence, which is actually an attack, to a head. Pick it up from the highlight a bit. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? I'll pick up from verse 51 in a moment. What are we to make of Stephen's defence? Well, you'll need to read this, but I think for yourself. Stephen's saying to the listeners, God does not need a temple. God can meet Abraham in Mesopotamia, way out of Canaan, on the other side of the world, but virtually on the other side of the world. God can meet Moses on Mount Sinai, and it's holy ground though it's nowhere near Canaan, and it's not where the temple is built. God can build a temple and allow a temple to be built, but it's not a place made by human hands that can contain God. In fact, God is going to get rid of the temple, the physical temple, and establish his own temple in the person of Jesus. Also, regarding the leaders that God raised up, You've always opposed them. Whether it was Joseph, whether it was Moses, whether it was Jesus, you've always opposed, says Stephen. And here Stephen plunges the knife in deep. There are no implied swipes at them. It's straightforward, sharp accusation. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did you, your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. There's the accusation, full frontal accusation. You stiff-necked people. How do they react? They're enraged, we're told. And they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Stephen has called them out on their dedication to the temple, thinking that that is the place, the only place that God must reveal himself. Stephen says, no, God sidesteps the temple. God's not contained by the temple. Stephen calls them out on their opposition. And now he faces their opposition such that they take him and they put him to death right there on the spot. He's taken out of the city under the watch of Jesus from heaven and is put to death. Notice what happens? Verse 56. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, and they stopped their ears and rushed together at him. And they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Stephen, gazing into heaven, sees the reigning Jesus, the 
the risen and ascended Jesus who sits at the right hand of God now reigning over all the earth. He sees Jesus and Jesus sees him put to death and does not intervene. God's faithful, spirit-filled, powerful signs and wonders working messenger is put to death right there and then in front of Jesus himself. Jesus is sovereign. Even in the death of his messenger, in their moment of faithful service, is Jesus really sovereign? Is he watching this? Committing this? But it gets worse. What's the outcome? The outcome is mass persecution of the church in Jerusalem. We see down, and where it says Acts 8, Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Everyone against the church, they were all scattered, except for the apostles. This beautiful church that had formed around the gospel message in Jerusalem, with people sharing in their homes, having great joy, under Jesus' supervision is scattered, is decimated, and sent through all the regions of Judea and Samaria. If you've got Acts ears to hear, you'll think that's Part of. That's the next stage of the mission. Back in chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus outlines the mission to the apostles. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then all the ends of the earth. The church is scattered out of Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria. Except the apostles. The apostles stay in Jerusalem. The church is scattered, and what do they do as they go? Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. The very act that sought to decimate the church in Jerusalem, Jesus uses for his sovereign purpose to take the gospel, not by the apostles, but by the hands of the church, to the next mission region of Judea, Samaria. Jesus is not looking on unconcerned at the death of Stephen. Jesus chooses to disrupt his church, this lovely church in Jerusalem, to bring his message to the people of Judea and Samaria. And here's just an axe question for you to put it off to the side. Does that mean the apostles should have gone as well? Were they wrong to stay in Jerusalem? Look up. Acts, sorry, Acts, Luke chapter 17, where I think, I think Jesus may be warning his disciples about this very day. Uh, and this type of day when the Son of Man is unmistakably seen as reigning from heaven. Yeah. On that day, don't go back in to the house so that you grab your stuff, but don't be like Lot's wife who turned back, but, but leave. Uh, there will be two 
at grinding at the mill, one woman will be taken, the other one left. There'll be two sleeping in a bed. One will be taken, the other will be left. Saul ravaged the church and entered house after house, dragging off men and women and committed them to prison. Jesus may have been warning them about this very day when the Son of Man is unmistakably revealed and to go. So don't look back, which the people do. So the apostles. Interesting. You, you read that up and have a think about those things. The church is scattered, but they take the message with them. Stephen, who was supposed to be serving at tables, with food distribution is doing the apostle-like thing of the ministry of the word of God and prayer. In fact, he prayed, prays at the end of chapter 6 when he's put, sorry, at the end of chapter 7 when he's put to death. Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The only prayer that you hear in this chapter is at the hands of the one who's not given to the ministry of the word of God and prayer. It's Stephen. <laughs> God has sidestepped, it would seem, his apostles. God has sidestepped what would seem to be the plans to create this wonderful church. But to do his mission that he's aiming to do all along, which is take the gospel out towards the nations. He disrupts. He disrupts the plans of the council and the Jew, Jewish leaders to get rid of the church. He disrupts the plans of the apostles, though they were bad plans, and brings about his own good plans. And we see the word of God grow and go out. What will God do to disrupt your life? Will he disrupt your life? Like this, again, Acts is not the message of what God must do, will do, promises he will do, but it's, a, it's what God can do. Will God disrupt your church? And the plans to have a church where everything functions just beautifully to actually do something different. Still make plans, but are you prepared for God to do something different? Or in your life, to disrupt your reputable plan, plan to do a reputable career and degree and have a reputable job as a upright, godly citizen, which is a great thing to aim at. But will God disrupt that and your life, your traditional plans, and use you in scattering you, perhaps not by persecution, but sending you off into somewhere else that you had never planned to go, to use you as a teacher in a school, as a gospel worker in Australia, on the mission field overseas, as a full-time mum raising children to love and serve the Lord? Will God disrupt your plan? And are you ready for that? God chooses to sidestep his apostles of the same. God may choose to sidestep our plans as well. I'm going to pray that we might be ready to listen to God's word and take it. Father, we thank you for your word to us. Our Lord, please use us, we pray. Help us to be faithful uh, to the message that you have given to go out to the nations. And Lord, we pray that we might be ready to be used as you have used uh, your people here in, for us in this passage. 
we do pray for your uh, your spirit to give us insight into our lives such that we can live in a way that not only pleases you but extends your kingdom we pray Amen Hello, I am Elliot, and I'm in my second year of engineering, and I get the privilege of praying with you this afternoon. Um, praying is what we do to talk to God and ask Him for what we need. Um, we can pray for ourselves and for each other, so please pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, thank you that we don't need to be anxious in defending you or our faith. Help us to prioritize prayer and spreading your big news. Help us not to be afraid of this world and of change, but to fear you more than anything. We pray for Charles Sturt University and their Bible studies in Albury. We pray for new students to be invited and come along to Bible studies. We pray for the planning of new events, that they would be an effective way of sharing the gospel on campus. We also thank you, God, for Easter mission and praise you for many new faces at the Bible talk and focus meeting last week. We pray for the people who are keen to explore Jesus more, and we pray for good follow-up of these students. We too pray for prayer pods, God. We pray that as students meet up daily, we would be humble in our reliance on God, on you, and bold in our requests to see our campus, community, and world know Jesus through his gospel. Thank you, God, that you listen to us and act according to your great wisdom, righteousness, justice, and compassion. Amen.